Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's allbirds.com code SUPER24. Williams have finished last in the World Championship in four out of the last five Formula One seasons. But in 2023, they've shown signs of moving up. And what a defensive drive from Alexander Elben, who gets his best finish of the season and just his second point-scoring result. Yes! Get in there, P7. Yes, guys! The upgrades, all the hard work at the factory to get this ready. This is for all the hard work. Thank you. Team principal James Vowles is a winner, plain and simple. At Mercedes, he won a record-breaking eight consecutive constructors' titles. Now he's tasked with restoring Williams back to their glory days. I joined here because it's got tremendous amounts of legacy and success behind it. And I get goosebumps when I walk around the old cars still today. And I want to do proud to the name that's above the door. I want to be successful for me. I want to be successful for the 800 individuals within this organization that are giving up every minute of their day for this belief that we're going to move forward. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Williams has been in Formula One since the 1960s. It's the third oldest team on the grid and in the 80s and 90s, it battled Ferrari and McLaren for championship honours, winning 16 constructors and drivers titles with legends like Alain Prost, Nigel Mansell and Damon Hill. But in more recent times, Williams have dropped away. James Fowles is aiming to take them back to the top and his CV suggests that he's up to the task. He started his Formula One career with British American Racing in 2001 and he stayed with the team through its transitions to Honda, Braun and then Mercedes. He was chief strategist at Braun, the miracle team that rose from the ashes of Honda in 2009 and went on to become world champions with Jensen Button. When Mercedes took over in 2010, James helped build the team into serial winners. Then Williams came calling with a chance to lead the team in 2023 and beyond, and James couldn't refuse. So what does the future look like for Williams? James outlines his vision for success. He explains why Alex Albon's drive in Canada was so impressive, what he learned from Toto Wolff and the late Nicky Lauda, how Lewis Hamilton improves himself every year, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. James, it's great to have you back on Beyond the Grid. We're talking after Canada, where the team had its best weekend 
in a while. Alex Albon starting ninth, finishing seventh. Just how much of a boost was the weekend? Huge. For the organisation, it, it gives everyone really the satisfaction that the work they've been putting in for specifically the update, I would say, that went into the car there, but not just there. For all the seasons, we've been there or thereabouts on the position of scoring points and perhaps not achieved every time. But you go to Canada with an update that's delivered good strategy, good delivery by Alex and walking away with points that have pushed the team back up into ninth and championship, but within a scrapping distance really of seventh. So that for this organisation was huge. They, they needed that to elevate themselves. I think when I walked around the factory both before and afterwards, it's a different mood. People can see we're, we're a racing organisation, we're serious, we want to move back up to the front again. There's a reality that sets in with individuals as well. We know that that seventh was, I'm not going to say fortunate, but things fell our way in order to achieve it. And that won't be the case every race weekend. But we do have a car that can scrap for that point again, like it did at the beginning of the season. I also think there's a fearlessness to both Alex Albon and Williams at the moment. Where's that come from? Is it your influence? I hope in part it is, but one individual can never change the culture by themselves of an organisation. The organisation has to change around you. I hope what I've brought to the organisation is as long as you use data-driven mechanisms behind the decision-making that you're doing, there'll be no consequences of failure as long as we've done what we believe to be correct at the time. So just trust everything that's going forward. And I think that's alleviated a little bit of concerns that were going on. And some of what you saw in qualifying and in the race was just maximising everything that came out of the data that you had to trust because it's completely different to everyone else. Are you still involved in the strategic side of the team? Yes, but in a light level. I'm not... Uh, even back at Mercedes for the last few years before there, there was a great team in place as there is here. My job's really just to come in and give advice based on the 20 odd years experience I've been doing it and some guidance. What I would sort of term more, if you imagine a bowling lane and there's buffers that come up on the side so sort I of keep the ball roughly in the lane, that's, that's all my job really is here. So just providing support uh, when I believe the decision that everyone is making is correct to make sure the confidence is there to do it, um, which sometimes is required. Again, when you look at the circumstances of qualifying, you need support on things to make sure that, that the direction of travel is being uh, correct or there's nothing that's different to what I'm seeing to it. And there's the odd question I'll ask in the race, just to make sure, again, that there's guidance being taken to areas that I think have a level of importance. But the hard work's being done by others. Can we talk a little bit more about Alex? You've worked with many of the modern-day greats. I'm thinking Hamilton, Schumacher, Rosberg, Button. How good is Alex Albon? There's no ego. He's a funny chap. But I called him yesterday to explain to him that was a driver of champions. And I've, I've worked with, with a good number of them. And it really was. He didn't put a foot wrong at the point where he's under pressure from four incredibly fast-charging cars behind on tyres that were much better state than his. And actually, some of the work he was doing on repositioning his car on exit of 10 and a few other corners was very clever. And he recognises that. He knows that. He's, he's obviously uh, not someone that's going to go and, and boast about it to the world. But for me, that was a driver of champions that he did. Where he sits is this. He, he's definitely bringing the car to the limit of its performance, which is what you're looking for out of a driver. I think he's very underrated. And I'm incredibly happy that he's here within our organisation today and here for a long time. Would you consider building the future of this team around Alex? Yes, yeah, I would. He's got leadership qualities to him. There's, there's areas where he and I talk about uh, where I think he can do, do more in certain areas, but he's got what it takes to bring us forward as an organisation. As I said, for certainly the, the future from where I am at the moment, I hope he's very much a part of it. And 
how difficult a benchmark is he for someone like Logan Sargent, who's a rookie trying to get to grips with Formula One? I actually think he's, well, I don't think he's a difficult benchmark. He's a perfect benchmark. He's not here to actually push down your teammate and auto-elevate yourself. He's just here to perform in the car, which is what he does every weekend. And it gives Logan a reference. But Alex is more than happy to help with advice and guidance on providing really Logan a a step up in order to find out some of the performance that, that could not be on the table at certain points. So I think actually it's a perfect teammate for Logan in that regard. And Logan uses it. He understands. First of all, Logan has this appreciation, which again doesn't exist with a lot of drivers, of here's where I want to be, and I'm very prepared to adapt and change in order to get there. I've mentioned it in in another forum, but actually the beginning of the season was a lot more tricky than I anticipated. When you actually look at the layout of it, how many street tracks it is, how many tracks that rookies have never even been to before, let alone seen physically, there was a lot of them. Even now, we're into races where Monaco was wet, one of the trickiest tracks. We go into Canada, a track that, again, they're not sure about. FP1's completely gone. So they lose an hour of a session that they didn't have much running into. And then we're getting them onto intermediate tires, into drying conditions and slicks onto really marginal conditions. And these are some of the toughest conditions. And it's good. You have to learn at some point. But I think really the message I want to get across the world is that for individuals that are trying to learn the car, the extremes and the sport, this is not easy conditions to do it by. And then furthermore, you're up against everyone that's in Formula 1 is pretty much a multiple world champion before you come here, from karting to Formula 3 to Formula 2. You're against the best of the best of the best. That's the reference now. And it's difficult. And that's a good thing about it. That's why the sport is fantastic. Let's bring it on to you now. You've just completed your first 100 days in office here at Williams. And I might say it still feels odd to be talking to you in Grove and not Brackley, just up the road. But how's it gone? And what sort of an impact do you think you've made on Williams? I'd say it's gone well. And by that, I'm, I'm not adjudicating it by my own feelings, but rather the workforce that have um, both directly and indirectly let the world know that this is good. They're happy with the direction. They can see the leadership. They can see where we're going. They believe in where we're going and trust in where we're going. And examples of that are just the update kit. The update kit was delivered through expectations where it wouldn't even make it. But the team pulled together after some some good talks and discussions and the teamwork was probably the best I've seen it in the time I've been here. That doesn't happen by chance. That happens because you have everyone aligned that this is where we're moving and this is why we're moving there and this is how we're going to do it together. Everyone has really been welcoming, uh, which again is another good sign that's involved in this. And what we're seeing is the way the way I describe it is, is green shoots. You look at it and you can see across all of the business areas where you're getting development and growth that weren't there 100 days ago. We have a long journey to go. There's, there's zero doubt about that. But my job is to lay out a vision that is not now just about survival week on week, but how we're going to be better in one year, two years, and five years. The workforce can see that and believe in that as well. Do you feel a weight of responsibility? We're sat in Frank Williams's old office. Williams is the, the third oldest, most historic team in Formula One. You're about to celebrate your 800th race. How do you feel about that? It's, it's not a new team. No, but that's why I came here. It's for exactly the reasons you highlighted. It has incredible legacy. I mean, I, I mentioned it elsewhere, but if you can't find me here, you will often find me in the experience center sat next to some of Frank's old cars. I was there yesterday for, for half an hour, gaining inspiration. I joined here because it's got tremendous amounts of legacy and success behind it. And I get goosebumps when I walk around the, the old cars still today. It's not the way to feel. I'm, I'm hyper-competitive like many people in Formula One. And first and foremost, 
Uh, there were nine other teams to beat on the grid. Some will take longer than others to beat, but irrespective, that's what drives me on day to day. And I want to do proud to the name that's above the door and the legacy that's involved in the team. I don't treat that as pressure. I mean, I'll, I'll generate far more pressure on myself than the legacy will, if that makes any sense. I want to be successful for me. I want to be successful for the 800 individuals within this organization that are giving up every minute of their day for this belief that we're going to move forward. And then finally, as I said, there's a name above the door and I want to make that proud. And in years to come, when we look back at this era, uh, I hope they look back at a positive change. So when you're walking around the conference center, getting inspiration from Frank's old cars, is there one car that stands out? I really wish I'd done my contract properly because it should have probably included one of those cars. Um, <laughs> they're all in a very small region, but basically somewhere around the 14B up to the 15 sort of region, that, that area there. So you're going from the, the Prosmansal Center cars are, for me, a big change in livery, but all of them are quite special. That was sort of the era where I just started watching Formula One, knew about it, uh, had, became enticed by it. And Williams back then was a force to be reckoned with, no doubt about it. So, so those are the, it's not, it's not a big area. It's about five metres long. That's where you'll find me. Well, it's 30 years since Alain Prost won that world championship in 93 in the 15. So Indeed. Time flies. Absolutely. Now, James, you also race yourself. Are we going to see you driving one of these cars at somewhere like Goodwood? I think when I've, when I've done the brand um, a little bit more proud than I have today, I'd very much uh, enjoy doing that. I think it should be a celebration of success rather than just uh, anything else. But uh, I think an opportunity like that, you would never turn down. Let's put it that way. You summed it up well. Goodwood's probably safe enough that I'll be okay. <laughs> There is that flint wool. But there, anyway. is, there is. What about Frank and Patrick? Did you have any dealings with them in your previous life at Mercedes? No, I, I had dealings with Claire. And in fact, Patrick was, was here with us yesterday. Um, so still have communication and contact with him. Fantastic character. Really, really like Patrick. He gives you sort of the, the bare truth behind things that most others wouldn't. Frank, I, I really wish I'd had the opportunity to spend more time with. It just our past never overlapped. Let's now talk about the future You've been very vocal in recent weeks about the deficiencies here in Grove. Some parts of it, you say, are 20 years out of date. In this cost cap era, what can you do about that? Part of the reason why I'm being vocal is, is to make the message heard to the world. I want openness and transparency on here's where we are today. And here's part of the reason. It's not all of the reason. Facilities help you in some regard. You still need people, thoughts, creativity, culture, all the other aspects that come with it. But it's absolutely still infrastructure systems are still very much a part of it. First of all, I want the world to be appreciative of here's where we are today and here's our intention. Our intention is that in the world of old, we didn't have money. It was unfortunate, but that's, that's what Williams was. It was um, financially starved to a certain extent. And a number of individuals were, were in survival mode, is how I describe it, rather than forward thinking strategically about how we're going to be better next year, the year afterwards. It was a downward spiral. That's not the world we're in today. I'm fortunate, and, and very fortunate on this, because this doesn't exist with most teams up and down the grid to this level, but there's significant financial backing behind this team. Money is not going to be the limitation, but we are restrained, and, and I would argue sort of handcuffed to a certain extent by an element of the cost cap. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky, because cost cap really has only been used in one definition, I think, externally mostly, which is what I would call the operational side. And for complete clarity, I think that's been a, a huge success and has to remain part of the sport. The part of the reason why you're seeing a little bit of a closing up of the field, 
But there's a second side to the cost gap, which is the capital expenditure side. So very much into the accountancy terms now, but long story short, operational is basically the bits that you're paying on the car, the carbon fiber for it, the cost of people's salaries here, keeping the lights on, that, that's your operational cost. Your capital expenditure side is actually, I need machines that are, uh, for example, curing the carbon fiber. In fact, I need areas where I can cut and lay out carbon fiber. I need a simulator. These are capital expenditure, and, and you're into tens of millions for each of those. Every single word I've used, unfortunately, that's tens of millions. Very, very quick way of spending a lot of money in words. That's restrained quite significantly in the cost cap. Part of it was for good reason, which was, again, to try and control expenditure. But what's actually really happened is around about 2020 or so, um, for all the years prior to that, any investment you made, which is for many teams over 100 or even over 200 million across the years prior to that, big, big numbers, that's locked in. And if you didn't happen to have the money just prior to 2020, you're now with exactly what you had at that time. There's a little bit of a capital expenditure that appears, but it's a small amount year on year, not enough to change where we are. And the reason why I've been vocal and public about it is that if I just take where we are now with some of the facilities, for example, composites, I will have to use a lot of external companies to do the work. Simple as that. I just simply don't have the facilities internally, which will cost me about three times the prices elsewhere. And you won't get a meritocracy. You won't get a stabilization of field because we'll always be on the catch up. If I take it even more extreme, each year you still get a little bit of capex available to you, around about seven million or so. I've spent nearly every penny this year just on a system that allows me to understand where a part is or even how to build an assembly, just a digital software system. It's not a, an exceptional piece of software, very useful, obviously, but that's bread and butter elsewhere and has been for 15, 20 years. And just sadly, that's where all my money's having to go at the moment. For good reason, it will give us structure and it will help. It will generate performance. But my, my plea is really more one of, here's where we are. And I don't think people have really been open and honest about it. I, I've seen excellence. I've been very fortunate to be in a part of Mercedes. That's what excellence looks like. But allow me the opportunity to fight with similar tools to what others have available to them. Vested interests in Formula One. I'm assuming the guys at the front are quite happy with where Williams are because you're not a threat. So do you need the support of the Mercedes, the Red Bull, the Ferrari type teams in order to get what you want with the CapEx? Yes. Yeah, you, you need... And this is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing. Under the regulations we have, for this particular regulation, you'll need five teams to be in support. Well, one of them. So we need four other teams to be in support. But you do need the support of your peers. You do need them to, to be here and accepting that we would like the ability to invest, which will become more of a threat to those teams over time. That's the nature of the sport. Equally, I don't think it'd be right that you don't have the support of your peers because otherwise we'd start pushing through rules that are just benefiting one party over another. But hopefully what the world can see here is I'm talking more fundamentals. It shouldn't be that I spend three times the price that others do to do the same part. Could this be linked to constructors' championship positions so the people who finish 10th get more capex expenditure than the people that finish first? I think you could if you did that across many, many years, so five years average, if that makes any sense. But I think with the swings that you are sometimes seeing, so for example, if you take Aston Martin, a very good example, that's a large swing in balance. So should they be rewarded significantly as a result? They have good facilities as well, invested in them at the right time. And that's where it became difficult. That exact discussion, in fact, took place between all the teams. And the conclusion out of it was you'd need a long, long period of time going backwards. You know, another suggestion is why not just take the add up of the capex that people have done over 10 years 
and balance that, for example. There's a number of ways that you could be doing it. We need to find one that that um, I think is fair, that really represents where uh, different infrastructures are. Which um, There's active work. FI and, and FOM have been very, very liberty, have been very, very supportive in this process. I don't think we're there yet, is, is my feeling on it. Are there any similarities between what you're doing here at Williams and what you've done at other times in your career? Go back to when you joined British American Racing in 2001 and you were trying to create a front-running team in Brackley back then or, you know, when Braun appeared, rose from the ashes of, of the defunct Honda team. Have you got experience of, of building from the ground up that is useful and, and you're able to apply now yes yeah I, I think many simply think of me and 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 the other Brackley boys as it was as as those that had the dominant championship era with mercedes but actually you, you described it well actually it was more rebuilding the team several times over there was a rebuild around 2004 2006 again for the Braun era that was a complete rebuild and again before 2014 you have to remember at the end of 2012, we were Mercedes back then, but we didn't score a point in, I think, the last six races. That was Mercedes in 2012. And that requires huge, what I would call uh, transformational change or change transformation, whichever you like to see it. But you have to change everything. You have to accept you're not good enough and do that fairly rapidly in a space of a couple of years. So it's, it's fortunate that I've been on this journey many times before. It's the enjoyable part, if I'm honest, uh, as a part of things. When you're winning... To maintain that, you have to continuously change as well. You're never static, but the large, big foundational efforts that you do, if you get them right, they pay big dividends later. And I've had the opportunity to do that a few times in my, my career with, uh, with peers. So you need to invest in the infrastructure here at Williams. But one of the things you said when you first came in is, I'm going to start looking for a technical director. Are we going to see a migration of Mercedes engineers over to Williams or are you not allowed to do that? And there were definitely whispers in the Montreal paddock, if I could say this, that there is an announcement soon. Is there anything you can tell us? How good are you, Tom? (laughs) (laughs) Technical director. director, You can choose. Or coffee boy. What do you got in mind? (laughs) So uh, what I can say is the following. Since I started, it's been my primary focus is making sure we have the right technical structure in place and also um, putting in place structures here that allow us to really move on and develop without the the external bodies being in place yet. Before the end of the year, you'll see that the structure would have changed here internally with, with support from external individuals. But we're not at a stage yet where I can talk any more about it. It's a very sensitive time, as I'm sure you would imagine, involving other organizations. And there will be news shortly, in fact, but not today. And what about the job of team principal? Just how different is it to what you were doing at Mercedes, where you were motorsport strategy director? My role migrated across uh, the last few years when I was there to really um, start taking on more and more responsibilities that are very akin to what I'm doing here. Not the full breadth, but very akin to it. And I was fortunate Toto gave me uh, more and more responsibilities, I'd say month by month, really. Um, Drivers fell underneath me, both race drivers. Originally, it was, for example, just young drivers. Then it was young drivers plus sim drivers, young drivers, sim drivers, race drivers. Uh, You get the idea. It just grew over time for that whole whole area really to start falling underneath me. I had a team of strategists there that were doing all of that hard work. I had oversight of it, but they were doing the hard work day to day. And it migrated more to a role where we were looking at Formula One as a whole, what we want across 
the next five years? What do we want Concord to look like? What do we want 2026 to look like? How do we shape the regulations that helps the sport? What do we want our other organizations to be? How does GT3 fit into it? How do we use a driver pool in and around that? What does Formula E look like? Does that fit in? Do we need it? What are the structures? Is it profitable? And they were all sort of areas that I had uh, contact points on. And I enjoyed that. It, it was good to be really involved in the wider scope of motorsport. Now, obviously, that doesn't train you day to day for what Williams is and the requirement for the TP here, because Toto brings a number of skills to the party. One of them is very clearly he bought a business that was uh, at a fairly low value into something that has huge value today with large amounts of sponsorship. His expertise is really focused in the area. He's a great leader. All of those assets I, I was able to learn from him. When you come here, what we also needed was there's a lack of technical direction. So it needs someone in place that understands how to put that in without, uh, as you described it, a technical director or otherwise in place. And it's different as a result of that. I was fortunate in Mercedes to be a part of something that was called the TMM. Effectively, it's the technical management structure that's there. James Allison's part of it. Andrew Shovlin, one of the Brackley boys. But, but there's about six of us or so. And it was a good group of individuals discussing the technical direction of the organization. So I was able through that and through other experiences to gain um, some concepts and ideas on how to be running this organization. But the TP role here is one that I think is very, very different, for example, to one that's a Mercedes, just simply because this one, the breadth of it is largely across all parts of the organization, technical as well, in some level of depth. Do you have a separate CEO here? Because it seems there are two different ways of doing it in Formula One. Toto, Christian Horner at Red Bull are team principal and CEO, whereas other team structures, you have a team principal and a separate CEO. What do you think works best? What are you going to do here? Pros and cons are both. We don't have a CEO here, but I have an incredible what I would call management committee. That's, it's not many people, but we have um, someone focused on, on the HR side. Uh, we have someone focused on the operations side. We have someone focused on the revenue side, and we have someone focused on the financial side filling the role effectively as CEO, all coming together once a week. My link with the board is very close as well. It'd be unusual in a day if we haven't spoken five times. So it's not a typical board in, in the way you would normally think about things. And as a result of that, I don't think a CEO is required within this organization at the moment because there's very close contact with things. And how does your previous experience as an engineer help you? Because when you look at the grid as a whole, there are a lot of former engineers now in the role of team principal, you know, Andrea Stella at McLaren, Mike Crack at Aston Martin, and now you here at Williams. Does it help? If you look at what the team principal's doing, you're trying to run every, at least have an overview of every part of the business from commercial income, in other words, how you market yourself, what your brand looks like. And from that perspective, you have what I would call another generation of team principals, Toto, who is leading the march on that one, Christian, incredibly good at that one as well, understanding what you need to optimize in those areas. Then also, that's just one small part of the company, though. The other part of the company is production. The other part of the company is performance, design, build. You need someone that has an overview of all of those. And all you're seeing is someone could be more expert in one area than another. I think what I bring to the party, both through my experience at Mercedes, but also from other organizations that I had links with fundamentally and, and companies I had links with, I understand finance, HR and business from those as a result of it. The engineering side, I'd, I'd be the first to tell you I'm not the best engineer on the grid. I have a very good ability to understand what's going on, dissect it and present it in a way that is easy to understand. But there's far better 
aerodynamicists than I am and technical directors than I am. My skill is more being able to work with all of those individuals, bring the right individuals together at the same time and discuss and present a direction of travel because I have a good enough understanding of where we're going. As to whether or not that's going to be the modern way Formula One goes, I, I think certainly it works for Williams in the structure we have today and the direction of travel that we're in. It may not work as well within other organisations where they have huge technical strength. I think you're selling your engineering ability short because <laughs> because you have a master's uh, in motorsport engineering from Cranfield University. It sort of makes me wonder, you've obviously been keen on motorsport for a long time if you were studying engineering, motorsport engineering at university. Just tell us where where the interest first came. For me, it was, um, I sort of dabbled in, in karting many, 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 many years ago. Uh, so, so the initial interest was as a driver? Certainly as a lightweight interest into it, yes. But realised very soon on that there are far better people than me at it. And uh, you'll invest everything, everything, everything into it. Uh, the financial backing wasn't there to be able to do it properly. But I was handy. Handy's how I'd describe it. It wasn't bad. Can I quote Toto Wolf in that? After one of your GT3 races, he told me, and I'm quoting him now, you weren't shit. <laughs> that, that is, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's how I describe it as well. Um, it was surprisingly competitive is the right way of putting it. It was good. Same in another test I did with uh, another manufacturer. Ended up being within 1.2 of the works drivers, which is not shit. It's okay. I enjoyed it dramatically. But the point is, there are still people out there 1.2 seconds faster than you. They're professional drivers, but that's that's the reference. I love it. That's the difference to it. You you form a passion and a bond with it, and that was for me. And what I decided at the time was that this is, I enjoy it, but I watch Formula One on TV, gaining a connection with it. This is back in in sort of the 90s. You look at it on TV, and my perception back then was there's about 40 people. Um, that was it. That was the team. You of course don't realise that behind the scenes there's a tremendous amount of other people that are designing and building the car, and you don't even think about it that. I'll have a career there. You're watching it because it's an elite sport with entertaining aspects to it. Kept on going through school, watched, watched it in the background anyway, formed a relationship. Williams was the team I supported uh, back then, which is uh, a coincidence in many regards, but anyway, a happy one. Went to university, and the first degree I did wasn't engineering at all. It was mathematics and computer science um, because I was just good at them. And this is back in the 90s, so computer science was still on the upwards ramp. It was a useful subject to have. You knew that you would... You had some level of success from it. And university degrees don't define necessarily the job they have. They give you the breadth of skills to allow you to go and use them through different domains. About a year in, it was really about a year, I thought, I really can't do this for the rest of my life. It's not, it's not the most exciting uh, for me anyway. I'm not, not here to be behind a desk and, and either writing code or doing formulas. Not, not for me. So I wrote um, letters to every single Formula One team at the time saying, I'm going to graduate in, in a year and a half's time, two years' time. I'd like a job with you. Tell me what is possible. Very early on, obviously, before that. And had, this is back at the times where you had rejection letters, had, I'm pretty sure it was 11 rejection letters, put them up on the wall. And the, the other element to me you need to know is I'm hyper competitive and tenacious as anything. And that was it. That was a, a, red, a red flag to a ball. Can I ask, was Williams one of the rejection letters? They were all rejection letters. Fear not. You can ask that one. Williams was one of them. But there were two helpful replies. Williams was one, and British American Racing was the other one. They were helpful replies. It wasn't just no. It was no, but here's why. We need engineers. We don't really need mathematicians. They don't have a place within this organization. But you need an engineering background to get in. And typically, we wouldn't take graduates either. So there has to be something about you where there's an experience set that brings value to the team. Useful conversation. 
what I then went on to do was finish off that first degree. Worked then in a mixture of Formula 3, started the Cranfield course effectively. It was the first year that course ever existed. And the reason why I chose it is twofold. Uh, there was huge amounts of applicants to it, and I got through and got the place. It was linked directly with Formula 1. Pretty much most teams had a link in with that course and either presented as a part of it or definitely gave you access to Formula 1 teams. You had access to the BRDC. And I wasn't naive enough to know that actually what you need is the ability to at least get in front of individuals to show them that you're capable, because otherwise you'll just be too far away. And it provided that. It was a, it was a good course as well, it gave you grounding in composites, metallurgy, structures, uh, aerodynamics, management as well. It taught you a number of aspects of that. And, and it served me well. What I then did at the same time, worked in Formula 3 and worked in Le Mans. Um, so a 675, back then it was an LM675 car that we ran in Le Mans and in the FIGT. So it was near enough every hour of my day was either study or work on cars. and loved it. I mean, I was, I was sleeping on the floor of someone's house, had you know, the normal things you would expect. But I put everything in, all the chips were down on the table. I didn't, I didn't really care. Everything had to be about making it into Formula 1 for me now. As a part of that course, you had to design a school race car for something called the Jim Russell Racing School, which doesn't exist uh, anymore. It went bankrupt in the UK, but we won, an, uh, won certainly an award for it, the ProDrive Award of Excellence. That's what the award was for. And on presenting it in the audience, there were two Formula One teams and near enough it ended up with a job offer the next day. Uh, multiple job offers, but one job offer was British American Racing. And that was my career. What a great story. People listening to this who want to get into Formula One, there is the blueprint right there. Just be tenacious and um, engineering seems to be a good way in for certainly the engineering side it wouldn't be the same if you were in communications or marketing but but actually the formula is more straightforward than that it needs to be one of the top universities certainly in your country it doesn't have to be in the uk actually we would look worldwide now there's plenty of good ones in switzerland etf epfl very good ones in germany as well um technology munich doesn't matter top universities in the countries that you're in and you need to be near enough top of your grade to your class because it's the best of the best of the best that can make it here. Then you have to be tenacious. You have to make sure you get in front of us in a way that we can see that you're special. Now, the world's changed, fortunately. Graduates didn't really become part of the, the foundations of Formula One teams. Certainly for Williams, graduates are. I was a graduate 23 years ago, and I'm here today in this position. I completely believe in the cycle. You need two things, the brightest and best coming through the door and a mechanism within the team that looks after them find your leaders and make sure you look after them and train them in the right way. And that was the fortunate pathway that I had. We had Dan Fallows, the technical director of Aston Martin on the podcast not too long ago. Is, is he free? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the points he made, James, was that the quality of the applicants uh, applying to Formula One teams now is so good that he said he probably wouldn't have even had a look in if he was applying today, in that perhaps academic excellence isn't the only thing we should be looking at. I would actually agree with him. I think the level and quality that we're testing candidates to now, I'm not sure I would have got through my own entrance exam. But you always say that. You go back and realize you've forgotten a lot of knowledge that goes with it. However, I would agree with him. Sort of two things, IQ, intelligence, EQ, how, how you actually understand the emotional intelligence side of things, how you connect, how you communicate. I think both are equally as important. I'm that extreme. There's scope and place for someone that is one of the most intelligent people you can meet, but perhaps can't interact as well with others or share ideas. There's definitely a place in Formula One for that. But actually, Formula One is about bringing together 800 or 1,000 individuals working as one, which means your emotional intelligence, how you communicate, how you work with individuals is as important. 
And so he's spot on. It's not just about having the best grades. No, no, not by any stretch. And it's part of the reason why the entrance exams isn't about that either, necessarily. It's about actually how you interact with others, how you form a bond, how you communicate. You get five or six together. How do they work as a team? Does one stand out? Does one take ownership and responsibility? Does one sit down? You're looking for the behavioral styles of individuals. Talking about entrance exams, there used to be an engineering multiple choice exam for potential Williams drivers. Does that still happen on your watch? I don't think it does. <laughs> that might have been just against Nico, which if so, very clever idea. But no, I, I don't think that's still uh, a part of things. I mean, generally, the way you'll find drivers of the future is that um, I'm actually looking for the same characteristics. I'm looking for clearly performance on track, but intelligence as well. How well do they deal with the information that you throw at them quickly? And the simulators are better environment, or even their live race environments, a better environment to, to test that than a, a multiple-choice piece of paper. And then finally, you're looking for culture. When something goes wrong, do they point in themselves, or do they point at the tires, the car, the wing, the wind, whatever it may be? And those cultural behaviors, it's really important that they take ownership, otherwise they won't grow. So that's what I'm looking for. Can we talk about your biggest influences on, on your career? And there's two individuals specifically I'd like to ask you about. One of them is Ross Braun. Not only do I think you sound very similar to Ross, but both of you come at the sport as great strategists. Ross, back in the day at Ferrari, came up with some, some of the most innovative strategies that we saw. Do you agree that you and Ross approach the sport the same way? I learned a tremendous amount from him, let's put it that way. He, he was very good at bringing the right people in the room together at the right time to communicate and talk with each other. That's one of his strengths. Perhaps wasn't even seen externally like that, but that's, that was very much it. He had a very good ability to look at a timing page, so not, not detailed systems underneath it, but a timing page, and sort of have a view of the race from that. That's, that's a skill that served him very well. What happened is, is technology's obviously got developed since then that allow you to do things a million times in the future in different directions, which gives you more of a view of statistically what is the right way to go about it. But even so, I, I remember a very proud moment where it was in Japan many years ago when I was working alongside him. I was sat with him on the pit wall always. And all the systems just failed. Everything went down, uh, which was, oddly enough, an atypical thing in, in, uh, in Japan. But he was in his element because he was looking at his timing page going, leave it with me, we'll figure this out. Um, and he was looking at the gaps, looking at the progression. The characteristics I took from him definitely are he had the ability to bring a room. He, he was a leader. He had the command of a room. He was able to bring the right people together, give you a subject, give you direction and move forward on it. He was very good also at understanding, as I am as well, that you're not going to catch up by scratching as other people are in exactly the same way year on year. You've got to do big steps, which means take away and look for regulation changes or large changes that you can execute and do those. Don't just do the small minor improvements that are the same as everyone else. We're talking double diffuser 2009. Exactly that. But the 2009, the, the, the brilliance behind it was that all the work was done in 2008. 2008 and seven to a certain extent, but eight especially, that was a sacrificial year. We always knew that eight would be a struggle, and it was. We were pretty poor in eight, pretty not great in seven either for that matter, because the focus was on running three wind tunnels in different countries to produce the next year's car, the 2009 car. So what you have to do is you have to get everyone aligned with the vision that it's not about now. You have to give up on now. It's about next year or the year after, and here's how we're going to do it. And Ross had the ability to, is strategic thinking. It really is just that, how you approach it. And, and very much that's an element that I learned from him. 
What about Nicky Lauder? What was Nicky's greatest quality? What did you learn from him? The first time I met, I met Nicky, uh, I'm going to paraphrase because a lot of swearing wouldn't be uh, appropriate for this podcast, but long story short, it was power unit is great, chassis is poor. Different words he used, a lot more <laughs> words, but that was the concept behind it. He thought, okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm James. Um, what I liked about him is there was no bullshit. It was just really direct. And at the beginning, actually, he created a lot of friction by basically being really direct and in your face on things. He was just a racer, pure and pure. I formed a very close relationship with him uh, during the period of time because he would call a spade a spade. He would call it exactly what things are. When other people in the room were perhaps a little bit nervous about treading on people's toes, no, this is how you do it, straight in there. Very good with the drivers held their respect because, of course, he, he, was, he was a driver, one of the best in the world at what he did, but taught me a lot about how to interact with individuals. All too often, especially in English culture, you're a little bit cautious about approaching a point. Actually, one of the best things you can do often is be direct, explain what you're trying to do, and get over the problem because more than often than not, you create more problems by going indirectly around the solution than actually going straight for it. And that was definitely an element that I learned from him. The, the other one is he had the respect of every single individual within that team. After starting with that very abrupt start to it, simply because he was a racer, pure and simple, he just wanted performance and winning. And uh, that culture emanated from him in spades and, and really went around the organization. And what about Toto Wolf? Well, first with Toto, what did he say to you when you approached him last winter and said, I've got this opportunity at Williams, please, can I leave Mercedes? Um, he said, I knew you were calling me about that um, at the time. So he was, he was having dinner with Susie and I could hear Susie in the background whooping. Um, so <laughs> so it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how he wanted to play it down. It didn't matter. I had Susie's backing. So I was, I was good to go as far as I went. He was happy for me. He knows that I'd been you know, alongside him, really doing everything I could to support him and learn from him in every opportunity he provided. And that that opportunity wouldn't, for the time being, be in Mercedes. And so he could see that I had um, really reached a glass ceiling, reached a wall that I, I couldn't break through, but had the capability to do this elsewhere. And he was completely in support. Just talking about that glass ceiling, have you been looking for an opportunity like Team Principal for a while? No, the first time I looked for it, because you have to be um, realising you're there. And I think there was still a learning cycle that I was going through. Last year was some of the first races where Toto wasn't with us at the track and, and obviously Brazil was a strong moment where we went on to win there was relationships and bonds and learning that I had to go through and it felt right at the end of last year I wouldn't say it was correct before then I think anything before then it would have been not too significant a jump necessarily but it would have been a slow process and so for me personally it was the right time to do it what is Toto's greatest strength as a leader um, charismatic. He can make a room laugh or a room cry. He has the ability to generate the, the direction of travel that's needed behind it. He's very honest, very, very honest. Much too painful at times. He'll call it brutal honesty, but actually worked well. He commercially had a vision. So the same strategic thinking I was talking about a second ago with regards to, to Ross and how I think about things as well. Toto has that. More focused on the commercial side, but he had a vision of how to make Mercedes into what it is today financially. And it's a powerhouse. And that was his mindset. Now, talking of powerhouses, you've worked with some of the greatest drivers the sport has ever seen. Incredible collection of world champions, Jacques Villeneuve, Jensen Button, Michael Schumacher, Nico Rosberg, and of course, Lewis Hamilton. Which of those was the strongest all-round package? 
Am I asking you to name your favourite child now? Pretty much, and it's hard to do because they're, as with all humans, no two are the same. They're very different in characteristics. The one that impressed me year on year is Lewis because he can pick himself up and literally change a lot about himself. doesn't matter if it's training harder or changing your diet or changing how you're doing things psychologically, but he would adapt every year and grow every year because he knew if you stayed the same, you wouldn't be successful the following year. And he wasn't satisfied with being six-timed or seven-timed world champion. He wanted more and more. And to get more and more, it's not a numbers game with him. It's personally pushing himself more and more to the limit. But that, that culture, there's a reason why Mercedes went on to win eight. It's really hard to win eight. You've got to keep everyone aligned with the direction of travel you're going in. And it's tiring to a level that I, it's hard to get across. One day, hopefully, we can sort of talk about this. It'll be a whole different podcast. But you've got to maintain a level of operation that is just incredibly high. There can't be a, a second of letdown relative to it in order to keep going. And year on year of doing that, it wears you down more and more. It's not cumulative. You don't reset. It just keeps wearing you down. You can't celebrate the now. You can't celebrate the success you have because if you do, you fall behind. It's tremendously difficult, but Lewis emanates that all the time. If you look at what he is, he's never the same individual that he comes back. And I learned a tremendous amount from him. But all of them have something really special to them. That's why they're world champions. You have won nine constructors' titles, eight drivers' titles. That was with Mercedes. What does success look like for you now? The main thing for me is this. This team, it will take a bit of time to build this momentum. But success looks like to me that every year we look back and realize we have moved forward relative to we are. And I don't just mean championship positions. I mean system structures, performance output, development rates, culture, um, sight. You should look back one year before and be proud of the journey you've been on, but see large, tangible steps. And more importantly, you can see why those steps will then lead forward in the future. And James, if you succeed in taking Williams back to the front of Formula One, Will that be your greatest achievement? I think so, yeah. That's why I'm here. It's something that you can look back on with pride. Great to chat. Thank you, James. Thank you. What an interesting and enjoyable chat with James. There are so many highlights, be it what he said about Alex Albon, about his own journey to Formula One and those rejection letters, or explaining why it's vital for Williams to upgrade its facilities at Grove. James is bright, he's articulate, and I've no doubt that Williams' future is in good hands. Thanks for your time, James, and see you soon. Now, please send in your thoughts and stories about James. What do you make of the job he's done at Williams so far? What do you think of the tenacity he showed when trying to get into Formula One? What should he do next as he rebuilds the Williams team? Let me know through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid, which segues beautifully into what you sent in after last week's show with Giancarlo Fisichella. Many of you have been wanting to hear from Fizzy for a while, and I think you weren't disappointed. Let's start with this from Inga F1. I was a 17-year-old girl in 2005, and I had Fizzy's picture in my school diary, whereas classmates had actors and musicians. I must admit, it wasn't just for his driving. I was a huge Renault F1 fan, and Fizzy and Fernando were a dream team. Great memories, great championships. Well, somehow, Inga, I don't think you were alone in having a picture of Fizzy in your school diary or even on your wall. Thanks very much for your message. Those Fizzy Fernando years at Renault were indeed epic. 
Next, let's hear from Raf. I was there at Interlagos in 2003 with my dad trying to figure out what had happened at the end of the race while soaked to the skin by the rain. This pod was great. I'm a huge fan of Fizzy and so happy to see him achieve his Ferrari dream in 2009 and beyond. Well, Brazil 2003, what an amazing race to attend, Raf. And we were all wondering what had happened at the end. Trust me. Thanks very much for getting in touch. And finally, what about this from London Gamer? I always thought Fizzy deserved better and that his luck seemed to have been handed to him by Lockie. His racing career was beset with problems that I'd not have wished on anyone. He was fast and charismatic, as you said, Tom, but he was also stoic and tough. But above all else, he was a pleasure to watch. My heart sank when Kimi overtook him at Spa in 2009. Very well said, Gamer, and thanks for your message. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love reading your messages. And please send in your thoughts and stories about James Vowles in time for next week's show. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And remember that F1 Nation's preview to the Austrian Grand Prix this weekend with Damon Hill and myself is out now. We're joined by McLaren team principal Andrea Stella to discuss their upgrades for the next couple of races. And this week's Formula Y podcast is all about race engineers out Friday. Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.